Thanks for your goodness to us. Thank you for the opportunity to sing and lift our voices, to be with each other here in this place. God, I pray that as we now turn to your word, the Bible, that uh, that great promise tucked away in the Old Testament would be true for us, and that is that whenever your word goes out, whenever it's spoken or talked about, that it will not return void, that it will accomplish what you want it to in our hearts and our minds. So that's what we cling to today, God. We hope and pray that that would be true for our lives in this moment. In Christ's name, amen. Well, uh, as I mentioned before I prayed, I want to do something here this morning and then into next week that I believe could be potentially life-altering for some, if not many of us here today. And that is that I want to attempt to clarify three extremely important spiritual realities that are built upon three critical truths that the Bible gives to us. Three things that have everything to do with how you become a Christian in the first place, but then also how you continue in your walk with God this side of heaven. Three things that are core to knowing God and core to getting the most out of our relational and spiritual lives. Three things that, by the way, I find that many people, even inside the walls of the church, tend to be kind of hazy about today, but that God in His Word has like bent over backwards in making clear, understandable, and livable. And again, depending on where you might be here this morning in your spiritual journey, I'm even going to give you a chance toward the end of our time here this morning to commit to what we're going to be talking about, to draw a line or two in the sand so that you might be more than ready to live life to the fullest from this point on in your life. And just to give you a little bit of a foreknowledge to wet your whistle as to where we're going to be going over the time today and into next week, it's really going to comprise three words that again comprise three truths that the Bible gives us. And those three words are this, salvation, security, and assurance. You're going to like this. Salvation, security, our security as believers, and then assurance that God gives us that we are His. Those are three things that we need to nail down as a church and forever all be on the same page. And we're going to do that this week and next. And so no more introduction. Let's dive in and explore this first reality. We're going to park here for the rest of our time this morning, that of salvation. And so here's your first point from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, as we continue on in our series. And that is this, that salvation is the act of being born again by faith in the resurrected Jesus. Did you know that? Salvation is the act of being born again by faith in the resurrected Jesus. Peter says this right at the beginning of this passage here in verse 3. Look at what he says. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, folks, before I go any further here, I want to deal with what I consider is kind of like an elephant in the room in our current 21st century culture. I want to deal with something that's contained right here in the text, and I want to try to get something out of the way, and that is the incredible and not-so-helpful baggage that is attached to this phrase, born again. Have you ever noticed that? This phrase, born again, is like falling on extremely hard times in our culture today. You see, about 30 years ago, a man was running for president here in the United States, and one day a reporter asked him if he was a born-again Christian. And he said yes. And this man was obviously Jimmy Carter. Some of you remembered that. And with his unqualified yes, this ushered our country into an era where this phrase born again has taken on an immense amount of political and societal baggage. I mean, you ask the average person today 
to, to answer what they think about when they hear the phrase born-again Christian, and you're going to hear everything from right-wing wacko to strict moralist, from judgmental to closed-minded, from religious nut to really spiritual person, and everything in between. I mean, to say it mildly, this is a loaded phrase in our culture today, and it's taken on a whole trainload of baggage that I don't think that Jesus originally intended for it to have. Because that's what's so incredibly sad about this phrase, born again, is that we didn't invent it. It is not something new to our contemporary world. In fact, as we're going to see, this phrase was coined almost 2,000 years ago by Jesus, and then as we saw in our text here, followed up by one of his followers, Peter. And the vast majority of the images and connotations that it carries today, get this, were not and are not what Jesus and Peter originally had in mind when they used it. And so what I want to do this morning is back way up, dispense with our messed up present day impressions of this phrase, and let's try to get back to what Jesus and Peter were initially trying to communicate by using this simple but profound image of being born again, okay? And to do this, I need to take you back to the original coining of this phrase that happened between an encounter with Jesus and one of the religious leaders of his day, a guy by the name of Nicodemus. You might remember the story. Jesus was receiving a lot of heat from the religious leaders of his day because he was talking about God and the spiritual life in markedly different ways than the priests and pastors of his day. And this was ticking them off. But not all of them were in a defensive posture. John tells us that some of them believed what Jesus was saying, or at least were intrigued by what he was saying, but they were afraid of the repercussions from some of the more angrier, boisterous religious leaders. And so this is the setting then that might help you understand why this guy named Nicodemus came to Jesus in the dead of night, because he's afraid about what everybody else might think, to talk to him about the kingdom of God. So let's read about what happens in John's own words. Look at John chapter 3, verses 2 through 6. This is amazing. It says, This man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. And so there you have it. The beginning of this greatly misunderstood, rather contentious phrase. And yet I don't know if you noticed or not, But I don't think that Jesus is using it in the same way and with all the baggage that this word, this phrase carries today. And so let's drill down in this passage and try to understand what Jesus was originally getting at. And to do so, I want you to focus on that core image that Jesus was communicating here, this idea of being born. Forget for a minute that word again. I mean, let's be really reductionist among us, and let's, let's just drill down on that word born and ask yourself, what do you think it means when you use that word picture, born? What does it connote in your mind when you think of birth or born? And what I would suggest to you is that core to being born is the reality of life and of experiencing life, right? 
I mean, before someone is born, though you technically have life, let's admit it, it's a very sheltered life. I mean, as all of us know, it's life in a sack of water with eyes that don't see much, taste buds that don't taste much, fingers that don't feel much, lungs that aren't even working yet, and ears that if they can hear anything, kind of hear like you do when you're underwater and someone's yelling at you, right? In other words, a baby not yet born is not experiencing life as God has designed it in all of its fullness. Life that's filled with colors and sounds and explorations and discovery and relational ups and downs and profound joy as well as profound sadness. A child not yet born has yet to experience any kind of the life that you and I know about and maybe even take for granted. But then when a child is born, have you ever noticed? Parents and grandparents go nuts, right? I mean, they all run to the, to the hospital and the baby's born, the baby's born. And from that point on, they take like a zillion pictures And they throw parties and they give gifts and they visit the kid every chance they can get. And they watch that little one grow and mature and experience life with all of its nuances and subtleties. It's a beautiful thing. Don't miss, being born at its core is about life. Experiencing life now that you are in this world and all that it has to offer. And so with this understanding then, let me ask you, could it be that what Jesus is getting at here is that though everyone who is living and breathing has obviously experienced physical birth, they've been born physically, that in order, however, to experience any kind of spiritual life, he is suggesting that you need to go through some kind of birth process again. Could it be that Jesus was communicating to us through this very common, albeit vivid, image of being born that just like you had to experience physical birth by coming out of your mother's womb and in so doing now get to experience life in all its fullness that on a spiritual level when it comes to God and his kingdom you likewise need to be born because without being born of God and having some kind of spiritual experience you'll never know God as he designed you to. I think that's what Jesus is getting at here, folks. I think that's what he means by this very profound but simple image of being born again. I think this is what Nicodemus didn't initially get when he pushes back and admits that he's only thinking on a physical level by saying, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I mean, he's thinking totally on the physical level, right? But notice how Jesus responds and tries to nudge him off center. He says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Two births, one at the time that you physically came out of your mother's womb, and then again, when you realize the spiritual life that you don't have by default in this world, and realize your need to go through a birth process to truly know God, your maker and lover of your soul. And what you need to know, folks, is that this understanding of John 3 collates well with what the Bible tells us as a whole about this whole process. Namely, that we have a spiritual rebirth that we indeed need to go through because we're living in a figurative womb, bound by sin, bound by loss of freedom, and really not experiencing this physical or the spiritual life that God designed us to experience. And so to use the words of Ephesians 2, before we were spiritually reborn, we were, and I quote, dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked following the course of this world. And so something needs to happen. 
some kind of birth process or a rebirth process because it's in addition to our physical birth now needs to take place if we're ever going to experience what God wants us to experience in knowing and following him. I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. And not only does this understanding of Jesus' words fit well with the whole of the Bible, but also submit to you that it fits well with our experience as well. At least it sure has fit well with mine. As many of you know, I was a raised in a small Midwest town just outside of Cleveland that I've shared with you about called Chagrin Falls, Ohio. Look up here on the screen. I've given you some pictures of my hometown. You need to know that Chagrin Falls is a very, very picturesque kind of Norman Rockwell Americana town. Started out as middle class back in the 70s, kind of went to upper middle class somewhere in the 80s and 90s as so many towns did. But people traveled from all over the Cleveland area to visit Chagrin Falls. I mean, on a sunny day in the summer in Cleveland, which is like really rare, people will go to travel to Chagrin Falls and spend the day there, kind of like maybe Flagstaff or Payson or wherever you go here. There's a gazebo in the town square. There's a river right running through the town with a big waterfall. There's lots of parks and a few quaint restaurants. There's even an old candy store there called the Popcorn Shop where you can get an ice cream or some cotton candy as you walk along the river. It's just a beautiful little town. There's no McDonald's, no Burger King, no Walmart, no Kmart. They're all outlawed in Chagrin. Just an old hardware store that was been there since the early 1900s. And so as you can imagine, my physical life growing up in this town was like awesome, right? I mean, I spent my days playing sports and exploring the sewers in this town and just having a lot of fun fishing in the river. When I was 16, I got my first muscle car and drove the cops crazy, you know. I got a 1965 Dodge Coronet 440 with a 361 two-barrel, for those of you who care. And it became known across town that Jamie Rasmussen, lookout, had a car like that. I mean, it was a great experience growing up in this town. And I had wonderful parents growing up. I mean, my parents insisted that I was home five nights a week for family dinner. Remember those? And they came to all my sporting events. And we took wonderful family vacations. I mean, it was your typical Norman Rockwell Americana town. From a natural, human-based standpoint, I had it all. We even had a little religion. Church every once in a while to round out the bases, but nothing too radical. I mean, it was a perfect life for a kid growing up. No complaints. Now, please see, I was born into this world physically... And I was experiencing life as probably as best you're going to get it, at least back in the 1960s and the 1970s. But here's the point. Is that ever since I was a little guy growing up in this environment, even as good as it all was to be born in this physical environment, ever since I was young, I could remember thinking there, there must be more to this world than this material, socioeconomic, semi-relational, pretty fun environment. In other words, I remember thinking way back in elementary school, there has to be something more to reality than just what I'm experiencing here in Chagrin Falls, Ohio. There has to be more than just this wonderful physical life. And if Jesus had been talking to me, like he was talking to Nicodemus at that time, he would have said that I was onto something. He would have said that my, my soul and my spirit were functioning right. He would have said that what I was Feeling and experiencing this longing for something more, this feeling that all was not quite well in the world, was spot on. He would have said that I had yet to experience spiritual birth, 
And that even though I was born physically into this world and all was going well, I had yet to be born spiritually into this world in such a way that I was now in a life-forgiving, life-giving relationship with God my Father. And all I know is that if a kid like me can feel like that in Chagrin Falls, Ohio, if I don't miss my guess, there might be many in Scottsdale who feel similarly. Amen? I mean, let's face it. In many ways, Scottsdale's just a big chagrin on some levels. I mean, you got Kmart and Walmart and all that other stuff. But the reality is, is that between Chagrin Falls and Scottsdale, Arizona, you're going to be hard-pressed to find a more comfortable, wonderful, physical environment in this entire world. It's really true. And so many of us have been born in or now live in a wonderful physical environment. We've experienced that first birth and things are going pretty well. And yet what Jesus does is he comes along and he says through a very simple image, have you ever thought about the second birth? Have you ever thought that maybe what you see, this physical material universe, is not all there is? And that there might be more for you on a spiritual level. Two births, he says, one of them physical and the other spiritual that has the capacity to turn our spiritual life from black and white to technicolor as we come out of our sin-trapped womb and enter God's never-ending kingdom. And so if you're tracking with me so far this morning, the key question then becomes at this point, well, then how do I experience this second birth, right? I mean, the key question becomes, well, then how does one actually become born again in the way that Jesus is using this? And to answer this, we now need to go back to our original passage in 1 Peter, where Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends and followers, gives us the answer. And once again, let me challenge you as we read this passage, let's not get bogged down with all the baggage and the trappings that our contemporary culture has added to this phrase, born again, okay? Let's dispense with that silliness, and let's ask ourselves, what is Peter saying, God's word, about how to be born again? Look at 1 Peter 1. And notice verses 3, 5, and then 11. This is so key. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again into a living hope. Now get this. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Then skip down to verse 5. Through faith for salvation. Then skip down to verse 11. The sufferings of Christ. Folks, string all this together. Add it all up. And I'm telling you, you have the Bible's clear answer as to what it takes to experience a spiritual birth that will rock your life. Notice that it says there in verses 3 and 11, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the sufferings of Christ. Two phrases that are absolutely central to what Jesus has done for us so that we might have new life. And when it says there the sufferings of Christ, we know what Peter means by this because we've read ahead. You see, every author, we know this in literature, uh, uses their phrases and words in context of the whole, right? And so just looking at 1 Peter um, 1, 11 there, the sufferings of Christ, you think, well, what's that about? Everybody suffers. But when you look ahead into chapter 2 and read verse 24, look up here on the screen, he tells us exactly what he means. He says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Theologians would go on to call this substitutionary atonement 
which are just two $10 words for basically saying that when Jesus died on that wooden cross, most Americans know that, that he was dying in our place. He was paying the penalty that we should pay or should have paid for our sins so that we might be forgiven by God for all the things that we have done that have kept us from him. And folks, this applies to all of us. For all of us have fallen short of God's standard in some way or another. All of us need forgiveness in order to experience spiritual rebirth. And yet here's the problem. Tell me if this isn't true. It is so typically American at this point to muddy the waters by having some kind of attitude that says, well, come on, I'm a pretty good person. I mean, to care, compared to lots of other people in this world, I measure up pretty well. So what's the big problem? I mean, that's how the majority of Americans tend to think. As we're going to see, we don't really think that we have a problem when it comes to God because we measure ourselves either by our own standards or our na- neighbor's standard. So what's the big deal? The good outweighs the bad. No problem. Now, look up here on the screen and, and tell me if this isn't the typical way that so many tend to think in our time and culture. Look at this drama vignette that was put together by Don Bradley and Kimberly on our creative arts team. This might help you see what I'm saying. Excuse me, sir. Do you have a second? Yeah. We're conducting a survey on attitudes towards spirituality in America. Would you mind if I ask you a question? No, go ahead. What comes to mind when you hear the word salvation? It's a good question. <laughs> I, I mean, I haven't thought about that word in a while. You know, it's not something that the word I use every day. Um, I mean, the, the very first thing that comes to mind is, you know, the church and Jesus and God, because I was raised in the church, you know, and, and had a, you know, a salvation experience when I was younger at a camp, and it was very sincere. It meant a, it meant a lot to me, you know, at the time. Um, but, you know, went to college and found new friends and kind of, you know, heard opinions of professors and different things like that, and... Um, you know, it's strange. I just haven't, I haven't thought about it even in a, in a, in a long while. Um, it's funny, you know, th- that I was so sincere about it at the time, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really cross my mind very much anymore. Uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm even saved at all anymore, you know. Does that, does that answer your question? That's perfect. Thank you very much. You're welcome. What do you think of when you hear the word salvation? Salvation. Salvation as in the way that Christians try to get to heaven, that kind of salvation, you know, get closer to God. Um, You know, I've thought about this a lot, and um, I think I know where you're going with this. Um, I've been told I'm a sinner, and, um, you know, you're, you're entitled to your point of view, but I think I'm a good person, and I think at the end of my life, my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds, and, um, you know, I love my husband, I love my children, I work hard, I pay my taxes, I, I give to charities. I think, you know, that in the end, God's going to look at all that and he's going to say, okay, you can get in. So, salvation. Um, I think I'm saved, if that's what you're asking. And um, I don't see, um, the God in my world would not send people like me to hell. Um, so, a loving God to me saves most everybody. Thanks for asking. Thank you. Man, I was not expecting that. I think that's it. <laughs> Man, I was just thinking about what she was saying, and I mean, I'm the exact opposite. I've been, I've done so many things 
God would never forgive me. Never. <laughs> what a contrast between that last guy and, and that girl, right, in their answers. And, and yet focus on that, that woman's answers there for just a minute. And, and let me ask you, isn't this the way that so many in our culture and society tend to think about it all? I mean, we rationalize, we justify, we compare ourselves either to our own personal moral standard or to others around us who, ironically, are never as good as, or are never quite as, as bad as us, or as good as us. In other words, we, we kind of lower the bar to the level where we can jump over it. But let me ask you, what, what if God is comparing us to a standard that He already has laid out for us? <laughs> In other words, what if God, being maybe smarter than us, has already declared a standard for us and simply asked us to live our lives according to His standard? What if God is saying that we need forgiveness and spiritual rebirth precisely because we have all fallen short of His already declared fair and equitable standard? And so check this out. If you were to uh, read the Bible... Uh, here today, all 66 books, all 1,189 chapters, all 773,692 words, you would walk away and you would find exactly 6,468 commands. Let that sink in a minute. Over 6,000 commands are contained in the scripture of what God wants your life to be about and what he wants you to do. And let me ask you, what are the chances that you have followed every one of those? What are the chances that you have lived up to God's standard? And for the sake of argument here this morning, let's just take, for example, the top ten. You all ever heard the Ten Commandments? Let's just compare our lives to, to the top ten commandments that God has given us. So here's what I did. I was in my home office this week. I drilled down into Deuteronomy chapter 5, and I pulled out the Ten Commandments and put them on this piece of paper. And I numbered them one through ten. And I want you to pretend just for a moment here that you and I are at Starbucks or wherever your favorite place is to relax and we're just having a cup of coffee and we have this sheet of paper between us and we're just kind of asking ourselves how we measure up to God's top ten commandments to us, all right? And I think here's what would happen. Initially, what would happen is that you'd just be rocking when it came to comparing yourself to the Ten Commandments. Because you'd start with some of the ones, like I would, that I do really well at, right? So you'd say, you shall not murder. Ha! Haven't murdered anybody. You shall not steal. Haven't stolen since I was a kid. Honor your father and mother. Well, I honor them really well now. They're dead. So you might just go through all of these commandments and initially just say, you know what, Jamie? No problem. Bring it on. Problem is, is that after those three, then you start to get a little squirmy, right? Because number nine says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you go, what does that mean? Well, it means you shouldn't ever lie. You go, never lie? Well, I'm not a chronic liar, but does that include like white lies? Nothing about white lies in the Bible. Yeah, it means even white lies. All right, well, what's next? Um, well, it says here that um, you shall not commit adultery. Now, some of you would say, hey, you know what? One woman, man, one man, woman, I haven't committed adultery at all in my life. What's next? But others of you, because you've wrestled in your marriage, wrestled in your relational lives, might say, well, I can't say I haven't done that one. What's next? Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy as the Lord God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. And on the seventh day you shall rest. 
And again, if you're retired here in Scottsdale, you'll say, bring it on. I'm resting every day. But then you might have to admit that maybe in your glory days or your heydays that you were a workaholic like most Americans, right? And that you really didn't rest on the seventh day. So you can't check that one off. And then, believe it or not, you're batting about 500 maybe right now. It goes downhill from there. Because you look at number 10, and it says this, And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his servants, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is his neighbor's. And you can't say, well, my neighbor doesn't have a donkey, because this was written 3,000 years ago, right? And so you have to read it like this. You shall not cover your neighbor's BMW, new lawn, HDTV, iPhone, or summer home in Flagstaff, right? (laughs) And I just got to ask you, is there anybody here that wants to raise their hand and risk lightning striking you by saying you haven't done this? I don't think we could do that. At least I can't do that. And then you say it's even worse because then you go to number three and it says don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. You go, what does that mean? See, the problem is most people see that commandment as simply saying don't say GD or Jesus Christ, you know, in kind of a swearing way. Well, it does mean that, but even worse, and the Hebrews knew this, it means that you are never, ever to utter the name of God, like there's tons of names of God in the Bible, without meaning it in the context of reverence or worship. Whoa! So it means that you never say his name unless you're worshiping him or revering him in your life. Who of us can say that we have done that? And then the coup d'etat of it all is actually commandment number one. You shall have no other gods before me. Which means that your money, your possessions, your job, your relationships, your hobbies, your dreams, your ambitions, nothing should come before God in your life. Gosh, who of us can say that? Are you starting to see just the top 10 we don't do very well at at the end of the day? And here's the clincher, is that there actually was one guy in the New Testament that Jesus rubbed shoulders with that claimed to keep all of these, you know. He said, yeah, I've kept all the Ten Commandments. And you want to scream at the Bible and say, liar, you know, but Jesus didn't do that. Jesus took him in his word because I guess it's possible to keep all these things. But the problem is, is that once you do that, you still have 6,458 commandments to go. In other words, who's going to do all that? And that's what Peter is saying here, folks. That's what the Bible is saying. It's saying that we all have fallen short. We all have the need of forgiveness by Almighty God if we're ever going to have spiritual life and the relationship with Him that our souls long for. And it's no different with God than you experience with your human relationships. I mean, if your best friend wrongs you, one of two things has to happen. Either he or she needs to apologize and make it right, or even without that, you need to forgive him or her if you're ever going to have a reconciled relationship, right? I mean, that's how relationships work. It's just no different with God. He has said, I have a standard. It's a standard from creation. I revealed it to you. I've made it plain and clear. And none of you have kept it. Therefore... You are in that womb, and you need to be born into a forgiving relationship with me. So when it says, he himself bore our sins, that Christ suffered, please see, this becomes the pathway for forgiveness that God has laid out. He died for you and for me so that we might be brought into a personal relationship with him laced with forgiveness. And when it further says through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, 
This is simply Jesus' way of saying, I am who I said I am. Bury me, put me in the grave for three days, I'm rising again to prove my victory over death to prove that what I said was true, that I live again. And then comes the real key. Look at verse 5 again. It says, through faith. Through faith for salvation, and now we're getting there. Simply put, folks, what the Bible makes evidently clear is that it is not enough, please don't miss this, to know the facts about this second birth or the gospel. The fact that you need forgiveness and that Jesus died for you. It's not enough to just know that. I mean, that's the typical American mantra. You ask people if they know about Jesus and he died on a cross for their sins, and they say, yeah, 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 what's next, right? And that's the way many of us think. The Bible doesn't stop there. The Bible says that you actually need to personally and experientially receive Jesus Christ into your life, accepting him as Lord and Savior with mind, heart, and will. You must come to the point where you realize your utter need for God and so you stop playing games in your spiritual life and you place your whole life under His leadership and under His control. In short, to experience this second birth, this spiritual birth that opens up the whole kingdom of God to you, you need to believe and receive. And receiving, though a passive thing, involves the whole person. Receive Him into your life He's made you as a whole person, and through this you are born anew. Because without receiving Him, without engaging God with your mind and heart and will, accepting with everything in you what He has done for you, there is no second birth. There is no spiritual life, God says. Uh, Let let me give you an illustration that might help you see this. Because this is a really important distinction between knowing the facts about the gospel, knowing the facts about these spiritual truths, but not having an experience of receiving them into your life. Uh, During the presidency of Andrew Jackson, this is a true story, back in the 1830s there was a postal clerk by the name of George Wilson. And one day George Wilson got this brainstorm that he could get rich quickly if he robbed a federal payroll. The only problem was in the midst of robbing this federal payroll, he killed a man. In the process, he killed a guard. He didn't mean to, but his gun went off and he shot somebody. And so, as you can imagine, the court convicted him and he sentenced him to death by hanging. But at that time in America, the public sentiment against capital punishment was riding high. And so there was a movement that began that asked President Jackson to secure a pardon for George Wilson. And through a long, drawn-out process, they argued that it was his first offense and he didn't mean to and capital punishment is cruel. Andrew Jackson actually intervened with a pardon for George Wilson. He didn't pardon him for the whole crime, just pardoned him for the sentence of death. And amazingly, Wilson refused it. He said, no, I did commit this crime. Even though it was an accident, I killed another man. And for that, life for life, I need to die. This had never happened in the history of the United States up to that point. The country was about 50 years old. And so the Supreme Court was eventually asked to rule on whether someone could indeed refuse a presidential pardon. And Chief Justice John Marshall handed down the court's opinion. And I researched it this week, found the actual document on the Internet. Amazing, the Internet, isn't it? From 1833 of the court's decision. And I want to read you a portion of John Marshall's decision. This is so relevant for you and I today. Listen to what he says. He says, A pardon is a deed to the validity of which delivery is essential. And delivery is not complete without acceptance. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered, and if it be rejected, we have discovered no power in a court to force it on him. 
He says, it may be supposed that no being condemned to death would reject such a pardon, but the rule must be the same in capital cases as it is in misdemeanors. And George Wilson was hanged based upon this decision. A pardon declared by the Supreme Court not only has to be granted, but for it to have any validity, it also needs to be received. And the point is simple, is that God's Word, when it comes to you and I and Him, says the exact same thing. Christ died for the sins of the whole world. Isn't that amazing news? For all of us. All of us stuck in the same awful boat. He died for our sins. But it doesn't stop there. A pardon not received is a pardon not granted. And so unless each individual comes to a point in their life where they receive with their whole person this forgiveness that God has given us through Christ, then you have not experienced rebirth. But once you receive it, everything changes. Are you starting to see, folks? Being born again, please see, I want to just get this out of the way, has nothing to do with your voting record. It has nothing to do with what church you belong to. It has nothing to do even with what particular value system you might have or not have. It simply has everything to do with your spiritual walk with God and with Jesus and whether you have truly experienced His life-giving forgiveness and the newness of life that He now offers you. And so here's what I want to do today. As I mentioned earlier, I want to give each of you a chance to do some business with God. I want to give you a chance to draw a line in the sand when it comes to your life from this point forward. And as far as I see it, there's two groups of people here today that just might want to draw a line like that. First, there are those of you who have never clearly had a time in your life where you've accepted Christ, remember, believe and received, into your life as Lord and Savior. And please don't get me wrong. You've been to church, maybe regularly or on and off. You may have been involved in plenty of Christian activities. You might have been in a Bible study or a Sunday school class or served in a soup kitchen. You might have some kind of church background, growing up in the church. You might have some Christian friends. But as we've established today, none of these things make you a Christian. Only having a personal experience with the one who calls you to be born anew is going to suffice. And there's some of you who are ready today to finally accept Jesus Christ into your life and give Him control to receive this forgiveness and experience the new birth that He offers you. And I promise you that you'll never be the same if you do that. This week I got a, uh, an email from a friend in Cleveland named Tony. Met Tony a few years back on a personal level and uh, it was an amazing meeting. You see, Tony had been a part of my church in Cleveland there for last six, seven years. And, you know, if you saw Tony and his beautiful wife and his couple little kids walking into church, you'd just think Norman Walkrell, Americana, Chagrin Falls, they're coming to church. And they'd come into church every Sunday and sit maybe three or four rows back. And, you know, a strapping young businessman and his wife, and I knew she was a Southern Baptist by background, so, I, like, I didn't worry about them spiritually, right? Southern Baptist, no fears. And so I saw them for four or five years as just kind of having it together on a spiritual level. Foolish me. Because one Sunday, I gave people a chance, as I'm going to give many of you here in a minute, a chance to receive Christ and to come down and pray with me. And uh, first in line, first down there was, was Tony. And I could tell by the look on his face, the intense look, that he was doing a significant business with God, that something was churning in his soul. I later came to find out that he had married a nice Southern Baptist girl. And that he had gone and done the church thing, wanted to honor his wife. 
never gotten to a point ever where he had been spiritually born of God. And that day two years ago forever changed Tony's life in an amazing way. I'm going to give some of you a chance here in just a few minutes to have a spiritual birthday today, to declare the day, the day that you were born anew into God's kingdom. And then there's another group of you here today that I want to give a chance to draw a spiritual line in the sand, and that is that those of you who have clearly had a experience where you've been born anew, you've accepted Jesus into your life as Lord and Savior, but the fires have died down a bit, and you need to recommit your life to Him. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. No different than a marriage that goes through dry periods. You need a shot in the arm. You need to reaffirm your vows to Christ and give your life once again to Him. Uh, To use John's language in the book of Revelation, your first love is not exactly first place anymore, is it? Or to use Paul's language to Timothy, you need a fan into flame, that walk with God that you once had. It's fascinating, a recent Pew Forum poll that I just read about last night cited that 13% of Christians who attend evangelical churches state that God for them is more of an impersonal force than a person with whom they have a relationship with. Think about that. One in eight people who go to church today, evangelical churches, say that God is more like Star Wars, may the force be with you, than a personal, organic, life-giving relationship. Folks, i got to tell you, I've been there. There have been times in my 25 years of walking with God in which I go, man, the fires have died down. It's more like the force be with you. I mean, I'm just not firing on eight cylinders in my walk with Him anymore. I love an illustration that a friend of mine shared recently about this. He said, Jamie, when I became a Christian, it was like going from a single-seat bike to a tandem bike. Remember those? Tandem bikes. And he said that when I went to that tandem bike when I became a Christian, Jesus was in the front seat, now steering it, guiding it where it should go, and I was in the back, and all Jesus asked me to do was pedal like crazy. He asked me to read the Word, pray, fellowship with other Christians, you know, and and serve Him, obey Him. He said, but the problem is, is that over time, one of two things can tend to happen. Either one, you stop pedaling and just sort of put your feet up and try to let Jesus take you without you doing anything. He said that's one of the things that happens. He said, or even worse, you bump Jesus out of that first seat and put him in the second seat, and you take the controls, right? And he said that's what happens many times in our spiritual life. When he shared that with me, I thought, I relate to both of those. <laughs> there's times where I'm just not pedaling, and there's times where I've taken the front seat once again. And it's at those times where we need to recommit our life to Christ it's at those times where we need to say, he's in the front seat, I'm in the back seat, I'm pedaling, he's guiding where I'm going. It's time to recommit to him. And I want to give you a chance to do that today, if that's where you are. As I kind of hinted to, what I'm going to do is I'm going to invite any of you who want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior for the first time, to be born anew, as well as those of you who are recommitting your life, I want you to come down during this next song that we're going to sing and join me here for prayer. Some of you are thinking right now, what are we in Oklahoma? Why are you having an altar call at Scottsdale Bible Church here? Let me tell you why we're doing this. It's because I have learned, don't, I'm, I like Oklahoma, I have learned over the years that part of our spiritual life, and I think we miss this, involves our body as well. Do you understand that? We're whole people. And I sometimes think we get robbed when we get to make a commitment by sort of signing a card or raising our hand or something like that without having to physically make a move. I think there's something special and profound 
in a safe place like this among your broken brothers and sisters about coming down with your pastor, who, by the way, is going to be the first one down here. I'm staying right here with you to say I'm ready to recommit my life to Christ. I'm ready to accept him for the very first time. I think there's something profound about doing that individually between you and God, but together as a community. And so let's not be shy about doing that. And so if that's you, if that's what God has put on your heart and mind today, then during this next song, as we start singing here after I pray, I invite you please to join me down here and then I'll lead us in a couple of commitment ceremonies, a couple of prayers for you where you happen to be spiritually. Why don't you bow with me? Father God, I thank you that once again your word, your revelation to us is so spot on that God, when it comes to this idea of being born physically, we relate. And what a wonderful world in so many ways you've given us. But Lord, there's something missing. We all feel that. And what Jesus has so clearly made known to us is that it's all about this second birth, this time where we get born anew. And God, there's some who are ready to do that here this morning. Receive their hearts and their minds as they come down. And Father, there's others of us too who are on that tandem bike because we've accepted Christ, but we've stopped pedaling or we've switched seats. And uh, it's time, Lord, for us to, uh, to get back on track. With what, your life, with what you want our lives to be about. It's time to draw a line in the sand and recommit our lives to you. Would you receive that too as well? Thank you, God, for this time. Thank you for this safe place where we can do business like this with you. Receive it, we pray. In Jesus' holy and precious name, amen.